birth was uh, this book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. If you guys, those of you guys who are parents, you may have read that. It's not necessarily an endorsement, but it's something that we found a lot of benefit from. See, as new parents, we found that this book was filled with excellent information about the development of this child that was in, that was growing in Danielle's womb. We got to gain knowledge about each trimester. We got to understand the size of the baby. We got to, uh, got to uh, kind of gather what was normal and be alerted to what would be abnormal in that gestational process. We found out what she should eat and what she shouldn't eat or really what she couldn't eat at different times. And you guys who are moms, you know what that's like. But we also got insight into when to call the doctor. When, and both at the end, when do we get on the phone and say, hey, doc, I think it's time. For one of our kids, the doctor was like, why didn't you call me yesterday? You should have been here 24 hours ago. But that's a long story. We'll be happy to tell you another time about that one. Um, But in many ways, the book provided insight into what Danielle could only feel. And, and, And it helped us respond to the changes that were happening in her body. We learned about when we should be alarmed. We learned about when we should stay the course, when we should, no, this is normal, this is okay. But it also helped us grow in anticipation of the birth of Zach and then Melody and then Zoe. It was all looking forward to that day when they would come into the world. And I still remember it like it was yesterday, seeing Zach's big brown eyes just, wow, this is bright out here. And hearing Melody, from the moment she was born, she was making noise. She was talking. Zoe was a little quieter, still is. But I bring that up because I think that today as we continue looking at 2 Thessalonians, we come to a passage where Paul seems to help the Thessalonians and us set expectations regarding the return of Jesus and our being gathered to him. We could, in some ways, call this passage what to expect when you're expecting Jesus to return. So open your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, this is the passage that Linda read for us a few moments ago. And as we consider this chapter, we're going to see two big expectations that Paul lays out for us. Two big expectations that he, he shows us. And one is expectations of the future, what we can expect in coming days. But secondly, what is expected of us now? Expectations of us in the present. And for context, this this chapter seems to be um, information, or rather the the background for this chapter seems to be misinformation that, that the Thessalonians received. Someone wrote a letter and maybe signed Paul's name to it and said, hey, Jesus already came back, so go about your business, do whatever you want. Check out verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You see, for many Christians, this event, often called the second coming of Jesus, or in Greek, the perusia, is a day of great anticipation, much like the birth of a child. It's something we're looking forward to in big ways. 
And this is the day that Jesus promised on the night before he was crucified when he told his disciples, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And yet here, as we briefly considered in our study in 1 Thessalonians, we get to see that this day, this coming of Jesus is also a great, a day of great mystery. There are some things that we know, and frankly, there are many things that we don't know about this day. And so Paul here seeks to correct some misunderstandings in order to have the Thessalonians and us know what to expect in the future. That's the first big expectation, what to expect in the future. And as I said, it seems that someone had sent a letter stating that Jesus had already returned. It seemed that uh, this letter appeared to have come from Paul. And so in order to dispel these myths around the return of Jesus, Paul uses these first 12, chapter, 12 verses in chapter 2 to set expectations clearly. And now John Stott, a, a pastor from the, really for much of the 20th century, summarized this passage in this way. He said, now, now is a time of restraint in which the secret power of lawlessness is being held in check. Next, will come the time of rebellion in which the control of law will be removed and the lawless one will be revealed. And then finally will come the time of retribution in which the Lord Jesus Christ will defeat and destroy the Antichrist and those who have believed in the Antichrist lie will be condemned. And so rather than following the exact order of the text, I think it's important for us to follow the timeline that we can expect. And so if you want to take notes in your outline, here's the first blank, and that is that we now live in a time that, that Carl referred to in his prayer, a time of restraint. We see this in verses 5 through 8. And Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with his breath, with, I'm sorry, with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So it appears that this doctrine of the second coming was a topic of discussion between Paul and, and the Thessalonians. It was something that they must have spent a great deal of time about. And so Paul begins by reminding them what he told them. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's a little bit difficult to read this and hear Paul say, you already know what I told you, and yet we don't get the benefit of that. Could you imagine what it would be like to have a tape recorder, if you remember what those are? They didn't even exist back then, but imagine having a tape recorder in Thessalonica when Paul is communicating all of the stuff. Unfortunately, he doesn't fully reiterate that here. So as readers who are coming behind, we get the joy of just trusting that what God has revealed in his word is sufficient for us to know and go on for now. Speculating about some of these things is, is not necessarily as helpful as it could be. So we're going to talk through what is revealed and let the speculation about what is not revealed be in God's hands. Because I think that there are some, some things um, for us 
For example, here Paul writes they, that they know what is restraining them, the man of lawlessness. And frankly, this, this phrase has puzzled so many commentators. I looked over three different commentaries this week, and they're all like, we don't know. One commentator suggested seven different things that it could be. Another one, John Stott can, suggested three. It could be the Holy Spirit. It could be Paul preaching the gospel. Or because of the prevalence of law and lawlessness in this passage, Stock kind of leans toward the fact that maybe it's the power of the state, the power of the rule of law in the world that is restraining this lawless one. But again, in God's sovereignty, he didn't provide that direct revelation to us. He didn't tell us this is that restraining power. We get to take all of that with a sense of humility. In fact, in, in, in uh, reflecting on this, Augustine basically came to a conclusion. He says, frankly, I confess, I do not know what he means by this restraining one. And maybe that should be our, our answer, our humility. Come up, God, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know who this is or what power that is, but we do know that it's there. And we're going to trust that in your sovereign time, you're going to take that person out and this lawless one will be revealed. However, once the restrainer is removed, once this thing, this person, this power that is holding back the lawless one, once that is taken away, then Paul says will be a time of rebellion and revelation. It'll be a time of great rebellion and revelation of this lawless one. And we see this in verses 3 to 4 and 9 to 10. Paul writes, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Reading that day referring to the revelation of the lawless one and then the return of Jesus Christ. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So preceding the return of Jesus, there will be this big rebellion and, and then this revelation of this man of lawlessness, this person elsewhere known in, in Scripture as the Antichrist. And throughout many centuries, there have been seasons of, of, of extreme rebellion by what we would deem lawless leaders. From the Roman leaders like Nero, who decided it was a, a, a good habit to burn Christians at the stake and light up his garden with their corpses. Or Domitian, who commanded that he be worshipped as a deity and unleashed one of the greatest eras of persecution on the church in the first and second centuries. We could see countless religious and political leaders who used military might to force conversions. We could look at authoritarians like Stalin, and Hitler, and Mao. We can look at all those things and say, oh, could that have been the Antichrist? Could that have been? And, what, and, and as I was reading this this week, I got I to gotta tell you, as bad as some of that is, this lawless one, when that rebellion is going to be so much worse. And yet there's still speculation. In the 1800s, there was a, a pastor who... Um, well, no, actually, let me, let me, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Imagine what it would have been like to live in the 1930s in Germany. 
and to see the rise of Hitler and to begin to hear the stories about what he and the Gestapo were doing as they were taking people who were maybe mentally deficient and putting them into camps and then killing them and then telling their parents, oh, they died of pneumonia. Or the way that they would arrest Jews and put them in concentration camps. You see this, this, what we would see as great lawlessness. It's a horrendous time of history. And yet, this coming rebellion will be much worse. The millions of people that died at Hitler's command, I think, will pale in comparison to the destruction that we will see in this rebellion. But let's think about this lawless one. John Stott described this man, or really John, or not John, Paul describes this man in four ways, and John Stott kind of gives him four names. One is antinomium, which means against the law or man of lawlessness. So this person is, is going to be able to lead in such a way that the rule of law is destroyed. All those barriers that would hold someone in check are now taken down. Stott writes, the rebellion will take place, according to Paul, publicly and visibly on the stage of history. It will be seen in, in a worldwide breakdown of the rule of law and of the administration of justice and of the practice of true religion. But Stott notice, notices that, that Paul also calls him the son of destruction. The son of destruction. In other words, this one is doomed to be destroyed. Sure, he causes a lot of destruction. He wreaks a lot of havoc. But he will be destroyed. Thirdly, John Stott calls him the enemy. This man of lawlessness, this antichrist, will oppose everything, will be the enemy of everything that God stands for. And finally, Stott calls him the climber. Not only does he oppose God and God's ways, but then he sets himself up and says, hey, you must worship me. I am God. The prophet Daniel wrote about this person in Daniel 11, 36 and 37, when he said, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God, and he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done, and he shall pay no attention to the gods of his, of his fathers or to the one believed by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. So what we, what we can see, some of what this person will do and the rebellion that he will usher in, this will be massive and global. And it's possible that this person's on earth now. But it's also possible that this person won't be born for another thousand years. Which unless medical innovations persist, none of us will be around in a thousand years. So as Christians, we can be on the lookout for someone who takes on these qualities on a massive scale. We can be aware of that. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we will still be here when this man of lawlessness comes. Paul writes, now this, I realize, I see some eyebrows going, huh? 
yeah, that runs against what I grew up learning too. But notice the order here. Paul says there's the restraint happening now. Then there's the rebellion. Then there's this man of lawlessness. Then Jesus comes back, which means as Christians, we're going to be here when this lawless one is wreaking havoc. And in all of this, Paul, Paul provides for us a sober reminder that it will get worse before it gets better. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> It'll get worse before Jesus returns. And when he comes, he will usher in a sure judgment and a retribution for this man of lawlessness, this instrument of Satan, which brings us to the third thing that we can expect in the future, and that is retribution. We see this in verse 8. Paul writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, and whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The havoc that the lawless one wreaks may be a while in coming, but ultimately Jesus will destroy him. And oh man, what a joy that will be to see him simply speak and the man be destroyed. There will be justice. There will be divine retribution for the lawlessness and the chaos that this rebel will bring on the world. And as we considered last week as believers, we don't need to be people of vengeance or retribution. It is in God's hands. God is the one who's going to do it. So, so that leads us to the second point. What is expected of us now, what is it that we should do now in this season of waiting for, one, in this season of restraint while we're waiting for the lawless one and this rebellion to be revealed? We can speculate and we can postulate about who this person is and, and what he will do. We can try needlessly, as many have done, to predict the exact date of Jesus' return. But I think those would all be foolish endeavors. I do think we can glean three expectations of us from this passage, things that we can do now, things that we can walk out the door and say, okay, I can do that. And the first one is stability. The first one is stability. Some of the Thessalonians had become so unstable because of these false reports. What do I do? If Jesus already returned, how should I live? What if he's not coming back yet? How? Right? And so Paul is trying to tell him, hey, calm down. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, he says, basically, I'm writing you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That phrase, shaken in mind, in other translations, you might have the NIV, which says unsettled. It can be easy to be unsettled by speculation surrounding events and various people interpreting those events. In the 1800s, one pastor predicted that Jesus was going to return on a certain date. That date, as we've heard happen time and time again, that date came and went. And he said, no, Jesus is going to come back in 1914. Of course, that was after that pastor died well into the future. So that date came and went. Hadn't come. So the successor to that pastor said, ah, but Jesus did come. He just came secretly. 
And the, the challenge is we don't see that that's going to happen. What we see is that Jesus will be so readily available. He will be able to be understood as coming back in power. He's not going to come secretly. And now there's a whole cult or sect of people, pseudo-Christian sect, that believes that Jesus already came. So Paul's encouragement for us is that we not be shaken by that. There will be fast talkers and convincing speculators who have a way of leading us towards certain conclusions. And yet, as we've seen throughout history, they've all been wrong. They've all been wrong. And while it can be frustrating to think that God hasn't given us very much information to go on, we can trust that he, that what he has given us is sufficient for what we need to live our lives. And we should find stability in that. There will be people who will continue to speculate about this rebellion and the man of lawlessness. And I think the, the lawless nature of the rebellion and the global impact of the lawless one and the general universal of acceptance of his authority will be unspeakable. It'll be unavoidable, unavoidable mistakable. We will know without a shadow this guy is there. So no matter who rises and falls in power, we still get to demonstrate stability here and now. Stability in what we've been taught. And secondly, I think we can glean from this passage that we should stand firm we should stand firm. We see this in 5 and 6 and, and verse 15. Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was with you, when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know, oh, to, oh, to know this, Paul, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the, to, to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter." Like I said before, the Thessalonians had the privilege of some private conversations with Paul and, oh, to be able to have recordings of that. But we can remain confident in what we have been taught. We can remain connected to the Word of God. The psalmist understood the profound power, that stability, that standing firmness that happens when a person of God is rooted in the word. He writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. May we be fruitful and firm as we remain steadfast in the knowledge of God's word. So in addition to demonstrating stability and standing firm, the third expectation I think that we can glean is that we should stay connected. We should stay connected. In verse 15, Paul writes that we should hold fast to the traditions. And those traditions are passed down through the word and through each other. And it's not that the traditions are dogma but that tr the traditions should help us remain stable in unstable times. And I don't know about you, but our, our social media-infested society, our 24-hour news cycle that we have, 
our, editor, our, our X or Twitter feedback that we always get or whatever has so permeated our culture that everything is up for grabs. And you know, it's not just that encouragement that we get from the Word of God, but there are other people, there are smart people, researchers who have noticed the instability that has happened. There's a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He's a, a Jewish background author, although personally he's kind of agnostic. He's a social psychologist who has done a lot of research and writing. I think I've told you about him before, but he's a, he was a professor. And in 2012, he noticed a drastic difference in his students that came onto campus. And he began to puzzle by that. Why are these kids, why are these freshman college students so different than the ones that I had just last year? And over the next couple years, what he found is that it was about social media. The kids were finding their identity so much in what was happening on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or Snapchat that they didn't know how to have a conversation. They didn't know how to look someone in the eye and disagree cordially. They didn't know how to see their identity other than whatever feedback they were getting. And so he and another person did a, a big research study, and they basically, in 2019, get the, so 2019, here's the year. In 2019, they re released this study and basically, basically said, we think kids need to slow down. In fact, some of his conclusions were things like uh, they shouldn't have a, 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 a smartphone until high school. There should be no phones in school at all, which means check it at the door. I know, students, how it goes. You, you pull it out during class. You're not supposed to have it during class, but you pull it out during class, and I know. I, I get texts from Zoe sometimes. Um, but then he said no social media. His recommendation was no social media until 16, because at that point in time, someone could understand the difference between what was real and what was fake. He had one other conclusion that I, I, I didn't write down. But think about this. His study was released in 2019, and then what happened in 2020? COVID happened. And our governing officials said, nope, you got to be a part. Everything's virtual. Everything's online. And so the very thing that we needed, we couldn't have, or we were told we shouldn't have. In this interview that I listened to this week, I, I found it very interesting that here's this guy, an agnostic Jewish person, who recognized the value of church and religious communities. He was talking to a Christian. He said, he basically said, Russell, I see the value of what you guys do in church, passing on traditions, those, the, those rites of passage, those things that you were teaching, those things that you were instructing to each other. He said, I see it in my Jewish community. I may not believe all that they believe, but I see the value in what they're doing. Our time together, our permission to speak into each other's lives, the corrective words that we express when someone gets off track, all help us to maintain stability in an unstable world. We get to stay connected to each other and to the Word of God. And I certainly don't want to make this all about social media because, frankly, we're talking about the man of lawlessness the lawless one and this rebellion and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that happens when we allow too many of those outside influences into our lives and we're not checking it with scripture or checking it, I think, with one another, then it's easy for us to begin believing 
crazy ideas and letting go of those biblical traditions that need to be passed on from one generation to the next. When we allow our view of future events or eschatology to be overly influenced by people who stand to gain from clickbait, you know, you know what that is. They'll, they'll say something um, inflammatory so that you'll click on their link. Oh, and there's a click. And then they got you. And, and they might not ever say anything true, but they got you. When we allow our view of future events to be overly influenced by people who stand to gain from clickbait or take the word of God out of context, then we lose the connected we need with each other and the word of God. And I know in many ways I'm preaching to the choir because you guys are here. But I want to encourage you, keep joining in corporate worship together. I was talking to someone yesterday, and he, uh, he, he was talking about a young man that he recently met. The man said, yeah, I think I'm a Christian. And the guy's like, well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, my parents would say they're Christians. Oh, really? How do they know? Well, I don't know. Do you guys go to church? No, we've never been to church. And yet they're Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? So I want to encourage us Stay connected to each other. Stay in corporate worship. Stay connected to your community groups. And if the group that you're in doesn't fit your schedule or you're not in a group yet, let me know and we can find a group for you to be a part of. It is our time together in the group. I just enjoyed our time last night, being able to be together, being able to read the word together being able to pray for one another and hear, talk through the pain that people are going through in their lives. We need that. We need that to, to hold on to. One of the values of the smaller group times together is that we have the opportunity not only to read and discuss the word, but learn from people who have lived through ever-changing trends and still remain faithful. We will be better for it if we hold on, if we stay connected. Teddy Roosevelt, in uh, October of 1917, was quoted in the Ladies' Home Journal. He said, in this actual, uh, in this actual wor world, a churchless community, a community where men have abandoned and scoffed at or ignored their religious needs, is a community on the rapid downgrade. I don't know that Teddy Roosevelt was a paragon of biblical Christianity, but he could see that there was value in what happens here. Maybe we who are a part of that community should do all that we can to strengthen and promote and to stay connected to it. And I, I realize that today we've really only scratched the surface of what Paul has written here and I'm, I'm sure leaving here, you're probably like, man, I wanted to know who this man of lawlessness was. I wanted to know what the restrainer was. And I'm sorry. Paul doesn't tell us that. But whether you're a follower of Christ or not, you need to know that things will get worse before they get better. So believers, let us, 
Let God handle the retribution, the vengeance, and the judgment. We get to be stable in our knowledge of future events, stable in knowing what we've been, what's been revealed to us in God's word. We get to remain firm in our convictions and connected to each other and to his word. Don't be swayed by the instability of our society's ever-changing values. I would even su- suggest that we focus more on being the people that Christ has called us to be and fulfilling the mission that he has called us to accomplish rather than speculating about what part of the end times we're in. Jesus will come back at just the right time. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, let me encourage you to consider a couple of things. First of all, the eternal perspective of your life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a believer during World War II, said that this life is the prelude for eternity. It's the prelude for our eternal life in the kingdom of God. It's preparation. Jesus has made redemption available to you. Will you receive his free gift? And in our world, there is a lot of instability. But I want to encourage you, our life as Christians... Again, this is for those of you who may not be Christians yet. Our life as Christians, yeah, we're looking forward to that day when Jesus comes back, but there is something more that we have here together. In the body of Christ, you have a group of people who can provide stability in this unstable time. In the body of Christ, you have a community that can help, that can come alongside, that can counsel, that can care that can listen when you just need to complain, that can be a friend when it seems like all your friends have abandoned you. Yeah, we are saved for life, but we are saved into a body. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I want to invite you to join us in this journey together. Teens and young adults, let me encourage you, stay connected to the Lord through his word and his church. This is truth. What you read on social media, they're half-truths. And airbrushed, actually not even airbrushed, I don't even know how they do it anymore, but it's fake. So much of it is fake. Find your identity here. You are created 